Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kudenitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest today is Natalia Gumenyuk, who is a Ukrainian journalist, a foreign affairs specialist, and a co-founder of the independent media Fromatska TV. Welcome, Natalia. How are you? Good to talk to you. I'm fine. Thank yeah, you. Thank you for joining us today. To start off with, I'd like to get a little bit about your educational and professional background. Oh, it might sound boring. I'm a professional journalist. I studied journalism in Ukraine, in Kiev, and later in, in Sweden. But since uh, 20, uh, 21, 20, uh, 2002, I'm working as a journalist in various Ukrainian media outlets from you know various TV channels, but uh, mainly as a foreign news reporter covering foreign conflicts as well. Till the revolution of dignity, uh, it was the time when I, you know, needed to stay in Ukraine to report our own war uh, started by Russia. Uh, then I was the head um, uh, of Hrobatske, uh, which was a, quite a famous independent online television. Uh, but uh, where and I headed it for almost five years. Um, yeah. So the whole my background is about like being really a professional journalist. So tell us a little bit more about Hromatska TV. When was it started and why? What kind of news does it cover? Is the audience strictly Ukrainian? Or does it have services that have a global reach? So uh, Hromatska has been launched in 2013. It was during the time of the Yanukovych regime. So the war, the authoritarian, um, you know, regime in Ukraine, the media, especially television, was controlled by the oligarchs. But the technology already allowed to launch something different. So with a bunch of quite famous at that time, Ukrainian independent journalists, we launched the Hromatska, been among the many co-founders. It was pivotal during the Revolution of Dignity, and then as long as Russia occupied Crimea and started the war in the Donbas, uh, we've been reporting. I think it was pretty instrumental and the role model for many independent Ukrainian media. Hromatsky is still there. Uh, during the time I was there, we launched Hromatsky International, which was a service in English, including the shows and the programs. Yet at this point, uh, it has the English-speaking uh, wire, you know, especially after the full-scale invasion, it also got quite a uh, new audience. Uh, as far as I know, uh, there were always audiences among Ukrainian diasporas and various, not just Ukrainians, but people who are special, who are curious about what's going on in the region. So it was a go-to news source for them. I understand that you were a co-founder and also the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Lab. When was it established? What is it exactly? And who is the audience for it? Um, so the Public Interest Journalism Lab, it's an initiative, a multidisciplinary 
which was co-founded by me and a number of the Ukrainian colleagues, but also international colleagues, which is something in between uh, media production, but also research company. Because in 2020, when we launched it, we were curious on um, how to really return audience to the um, to watching and following the complex stories. So we were doing the research on how to report the war in the Donbas, how to report Crimea in a way that it would be appealing to the audience. What is the you know public interest journalism in the modern age in the digital era? How we can overcome polarization? How the stories regarding the controversial issues? Would it be vaccination or would it be history can be trusted? So we did documentaries, we produced them. Uh, we uh, They were published by numerous Ukrainian media, including the Ukrainian public broadcaster. Uh, but also we, we, we did sociological surveys in order to um, provide recommendation for international media on how to cover complex stories. Yet since the start of the full-scale invasion, uh, because we were um, quite prominent in communication with foreign audiences, we really switched a lot to the frontline reporting. I was writing myself a lot to the international media, including The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Rolling Stone, you know, American magazines. Uh, but we went on producing high quality material uh, stories, videos for largely international media outlets. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other media projects that you've worked on? So one of the uh, probably most important project we co-launched with our international colleagues is uh, named The Reckoning Project, uh, which is devoted to the documenting war crimes. We were working, uh, you know, as a frontline reporters within the first months of the war, but we understood that that probably could be a lot bigger role of, of, of journalists beyond, you know, telling what's going on, beyond raising awareness. And there was an idea, we we worked earlier, uh, my organization, Public Interest Journalism Lab, with Peter Pomerantsev, who is pretty famous uh, researcher and uh, of the propaganda and disinformation. He's British of the Ukrainian origin, so we worked with him. He also put us in touch with pretty known American war correspondent, Janine Di Giovanni, who covered... Uh, numerous conflicts within the last uh, decades. And together we founded this project which combined journalism and the legal expertise. So what we do, we interview the witnesses, direct witnesses of the war crimes. Uh, we record in-depth interviews and those, their testimonies can be used for possible litigation. So they are you know, analyzed, passed to the lawyers, analysts, and can be, uh, b based on the, the information we obtained, cases can be, you know, opened, and this material is uh, recorded in a way that it's applicable for the litigation. Uh, at the same time, uh, the same stories are written and the films are produced uh, regarding the largest war crimes committed in Ukraine during this war. And they are published in major international media. That would be the Time magazine or the, again, the Vanity Fair. 
I also say that within this project, I run quite a large team of the Ukrainian researchers. So the journalists for the Reckoning project are based all over Ukraine. There could be Kharkiv, Chernihiv, or, um, and of course, uh, you know, Kiev, but also uh, a few of our reporters, they were based in occupied Kherson region when it was still occupied. Um, they reported about the stories from the areas which are under control, uh, having quite a good connections. We had reporters who needed to relocate from the uh, from Severodonetsk occupied Luhansk region. And beyond recording the stories for publications and for possible litigation, uh, we believe it also preserved for history, for the for future memorials, for you know future museums. As uh, despite uh, today, there are a lot of uh, media outlets working in Ukraine. There are a lot of initiatives who uh, record the war crimes. The amount is so big, and none of the organ none of the organization, even the Ukrainian prosecutors, won't be ever able to record all of them, and also preserve them for for future in a way that uh, you know is verified, and uh, in a way that we claim is, of course, as close to the truth as possible. And when was the reckoning project started? I think it was like within the first week of the big war, early early March 2020-22, as an idea, and it had been it taken another month to develop it. But we we already, you know, started to map the possible crimes uh, while traveling around the country in May 2022. So, do you think the Russian invasion against Ukraine has changed Ukrainian society? I think that uh, during my reporting that, of course, such terrific events have huge impact on the society. But I wouldn't say change. I think it's rather like an X-ray. You know, they show the essence of the society. They show the true self of the Ukrainian society. So, for instance, the fact that the Ukrainian society is more unified than we thought. I don't think it's really a surprise or some or, or the result of the invasion. It was. It was united. It maybe didn't need this didn't need this unity during the peaceful time. What I believe really had happened is probably for the first time in recent history, Ukrainian Ukrainians have their state. Uh, they have the state which is serving them the state which they are not afraid of, the state which is not hostile, because for quite a long time, Ukrainian society, you know, needed to live in the countries which were the part of which were empires. And it's true that even during the first um, years of the independence after 1991, uh, it was still partially corrupt state, partially not very well functioning. And not that much as the Russian invasion of uh, 2022, but the the revolution of dignity of 2014 changed Ukrainian society. Since then, we can say, claim that country is genuinely democratic. And um, now in 2023, you know, it's already like almost nine years we're living in, in, in the country, which is run uh, according to the different rules. You know, uh, it's we have numbers of the, you know, parliaments change, presidents change, uh, some of the established institutions. So it's really during this war, Ukrainians feel that they do own their their country.
Natalia, how do you think Ukrainians are coping in the territories occupied by Russia? And can you give some examples of national resistance to the Russian occupation there? Most important for me to say is the occupation of the Ukrainian territories cannot be morally justified. Uh, our researchers, our knowledge, and also what we found out in the liberated area shows that anybody who is disloyal to Russia, you know, you don't need to be very much pro-Ukrainian. It's enough not to support Russian invasion. This, this leads to immense risk. We recorded numerous stories of the abduction, of the tortures, of the even execution of the people. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, there is the economic problems, the, the rather, there are repressions. So if um, within uh, the first phase of the war, I, I mean by this occupation of Crimea and the Donbas, that was not easy for the people who lived in the occupied territories. However, it's not like everybody's life was in danger. Now we can speak about the, um, you know, the fact that anybody who is uh, not supporting invasion can risk their life. And we're speaking about pretty large chunk of the country. If you speak about the resistance, I, I, I think that yeah, it's hard to say. I do think that like our existence, our everyday life is partially the resistance. Of course, it's the, the fact that every Ukrainian has somebody close who serves in the army and who is actively involved in the battlefield. You know, this is the armed resistance. I shouldn't undermine that. It's it, it, because it's really full scale invasion by the big army. So the only real way to defend ourselves is with weapon. But uh, the, the 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 other part of the society, it's supporting the army. It's also you know um, staying strong. And in this dire situation, you know, for us, even preserving normal life, you know, is is extremely important. I'm talking to you from Kiev, and if you really walk around and drive around at some po point it may look as if it's a normal european capital yes there is a curfew but everything is working everything is operating uh, as well like numbers of the services are working you know the bank the railway shops and but that shouldn't be taken for granted you know when especially foreigners come it's very important to explain that all that is not the it's happening not because you know the russia doesn't attack it all exists because ukrainian defend themselves because the air defense works because the, the the people going to the work because despite of all the tiredness and and despite all the pressure you know people uh do not stop they they try to live life they uh, try to um, you know, keep economy uh, running. Uh, and I'm not already speaking about like fact, you know, defending, defending the, the country. So there could be a lot of smaller, you know, cases, not smaller, I won't undermine, but like individual cases of resistance and uh, resilience. But this, the whole period uh, of, of this attack shows that, you know, like by surviving, we resist. Natalia, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but I did want to ask you a final question. What do you think will happen in Crimea? Will Ukraine be able to recover it during the impending counteroffensive? I would be very cautious with timing. Uh, however, for me, important to stress, and I wrote a book about the occupation of Crimea, which is called 
the Lost Island, Tales from Occupied Crimea. It was based on six years of my reporting of the occupied Crimea. I've been there a lot of times. We were writing about the occupation of Crimea from the point of view of human rights violations. But I think at this moment, we understand that exactly the occupation of Crimea uh, was the, the gave an opportunity to Russia to attack Ukraine militarily. So, for instance, it became the military base out from where uh, Russia was able to occupy Kherson region and southern Ukraine. Uh, the attacks, the airstrikes are shelled from the occupied Crimea. And also by uh, taking, by Controlling Crimea, Russia um, efficiently blocks both the Azov Sea, which is now an annexed sea uh, of Russia, but also blocks the Black Sea um, and more or less blocks Ukrainian economy. So it, it, it's becoming more clear that without uh, liberating Crimea, there is no no guarantee of this, no no security guarantee for the Ukrainians. Uh, unless Crimea is occupied, Russia would be always able to attack. As well, the Ukrainian economy won't uh, probably, res you know, resume. Uh, so um, today, it's not any longer a question of, you know, ideas of the, you know, stopping violation of the human rights, and it's it, there, there could be a really endless talk on on what Russia does in 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 this piece of beautiful piece of land. But it's in incredibly strategic for uh, for the Ukrainian security. So now we clearly know Crimea was not at all about history. It was not about like any ideas or, or anything else, but uh, waging the full scale war against Ukraine. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsia. Thank you for talking to me. I have been speaking with Natalia Gomenyuk a Ukrainian journalist, foreign affairs specialist, and co-founder of the independent media, Romatska TV. Today's episode of Krenitsia is brought to you by the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has been published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia. Until next time, that's all for now.